Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com. One place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Hello! Clam comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Carnegie Hall in New York City, the home of the world's greatest musical events. In the 1950s, television was a powerful new spotlight in search of a talent that could shine back just as bright. And here is Mr. Bernstein. When it landed on Leonard Bernstein, the young conductor more than shined back. His primetime show, Leonard Bernstein's Young People's Concerts with the New York Philharmonic, was a benchmark of quality programming and seduced the entire country. No matter how many times people tell you stories about what music means, forget them. Stories aren't what music means about, at all. Music is never about anything. Music just is. Music is notes, beautiful notes and songs put together in such a way that we get pleasure out of listening to them. That's all there is to it. Bernstein was a masterful teacher, explaining classical music with a passion and clarity that couldn't help but influence an entire generation of musicians and artists. In those days, there were far fewer celebrities, and Bernstein was one of the biggest. He wore it well, taking his seat at the piano at the center of the party. He really enjoyed the public Leonard Bernstein. He loved being Leonard Bernstein. Loved, and he, he loved being <laughs> famous, and he loved meeting everybody in the world. And, and staying uh, in was, fancy hotels and flying first class, and he'd take us along and share it with us, like, isn't this cool? <laughs> Bernstein was a musician, a conductor, a teacher, and a composer of classical music, as well as Broadway musicals. He was also a father. I'm the bossy one. <laughs> uh-huh. Bernstein and his wife, Felicia, had three children, Jamie, Alexander, and Nina. And while they knew him in the tucks and tails, they also knew him as the dad who loved games. He was a killer at anagrams. The word games. Yeah, oh, you my have God. no idea. Yeah. And always up for tennis or squash or skiing or touch football. Two of Bernstein's children, Jamie and Alexander, spoke with me about their legendary father and what it was like to grow up with people like Stephen Sondheim and Jerome Robbins as regular house guests. When we were really little, Alexander and I used to share a bedroom when we were like, you know, really little. And we lived in the Osborne, which is that grand old building. 
And Alexander and I slept, you know, at sort of right angles to each other in this bedroom. And we would go to sleep listening to the grown-ups carrying on downstairs. This is what we fell asleep to, the noise of the, you know, the laughing and the roaring around the piano clinking and singing, the clinking of the glasses and the smell of the cigarette smoke wafting sure, up the staircase. Lots of smoke. We could not wait to be grown-ups because obviously all grown-ups did was have fun. That's interesting. That's how it seemed to us, and it seemed like our dad certainly had fun when he was working, too. So we never saw anything that resembled drudgery, which is probably a thing that most kids perceive in their working parents, that, oh, it's such a tough day. And what about your mother? Was your mother someone who was his companion and she was along for the ride and all of it and loving it? Or was she someone who was sitting in a room going, when's it going to (laughs) stop? My eyes, the Energizer bunny. With I a martini in his hand and a pell-mell in the other. Scotch, not martini. Scotch, what Valentine's. Did he smoke? A Valentine's beer or scotch? No, Valentine's, Valentine's scotch. scotch, which he is awful. Scotch. I don't know why I liked it so much. He had much. a Valentine's. What's brand of cigarettes L&M did he smoke? And the other he had an L&M. Yes. And she had a Chesterfield. <laughs> My grandfather smoked Chesterfield. And a vodka in the other. But your mother was his trusted companion. She was, she was, in, she was all in. Absolutely She was all, all in. in. And I think oh it drove her crazy God. every bit as much as she loved it all. She was very social, Where too. Where was she from? Chile. And where did they meet? They met at a party given by Claudio Arau, she, a pianist. And, uh, who was her teacher because she was, was studying piano. She too. had told her parents that she was coming to New York to uh, study piano, but she really wanted to be an actress. Mm-hmm. So she came she's to New York. she's a beautiful York, woman. And she Gorgeous. was a beautiful yeah, woman. Very beautiful. Bernstein so no she problem. had this understanding with... Uh, Aral, that she would be sort of studying with him. But meanwhile, she was studying with I'm Herbert Berghoff. I'm going to call my parents. Now, make the sound of the piano in the background. <laughs> Claudio, <laughs> right. Claudio, por favor, play some Un poquito Chopin. de Brahms, por favor. Un poquito yeah. de Debussy, where I call my parents now in exactly. South America. I think it was very much like that. It was. And the legend has it that our mother sat at his feet and fed him shrimps one by one. That was Bernstein. the beginning of the romance. Yeah. Yeah, yeah not yeah. around. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, she might have been doing that. And they got engaged. but then Where was they, he at in his career then? So he had already had his big debut at the New York Philharmonic, because that was in 1943. Where he filled in for? For he filled in the ailing Bruno Walter, as he's always Walter. referred to exactly. in that circumstance. Yes. I thought his first name was Ailing. <laughs> right, exactly. But anyway, so this must have been like maybe four or five years later. So he was riding high, but he was not yet... That'll the be a name I stay in a hotel in from now. Well, I love good names for hotels, but I'm going to stay in a hotel under the name Ailing. Ailing. Yeah, E-H-L-I-N-G. Ailing Bruno Volta is the name I would use as a hotel. <laughs> and so the Ailing Bruno Volta, E-H-L-I-N-G, he had the flu. He had the flu. And, so and your father comes in. That, what, was he, what year in. was that? That was November 14th, 1943. <laughs> wow. Good afternoon. United States Rubber Company again invites you to Carnegie Hall, to hear a concert of the New York Philharmonic Symphony Orchestra, Bruno Walter, who was to have conducted this afternoon, is ill, and his place will be taken by the young American-born assistant conductor of the Philharmonic Symphony, Leonard Bernstein. And he had to get up there on a moment's notice, and he'd been up all night the night before because he'd had a premiere of a song cycle of his called I Hate Music, and it had premiered the night before, so of course there was a party. Where? Town Hall. And and it was very well received. And, of course, there was a party afterwards, and they were up all the live long night. And at the time, you know, our dad was living in Carnegie Hall in those little apartments they sure. used to have at the top. Yeah. So he gets back to Carnegie Hall at, you know, 5 in the morning and passes out. 
And then, like an hour and a half later, the phone rings, and it's Bruno Zirato of the New York Philharmonic saying, this is it, kid, you have to go on this afternoon. And it was on the radio. It was a national broadcast, which is why it was such a big deal. Leonard Bernstein has come out on the platform. It was highly covered in the press, probably because it was the middle of the war and everybody needed a feel-good story. Yes. American boy makes good kind of thing. So one guy said, it's like a shoestring catch in center field. Make it and you're a hero. Muff it and you're a dope. Bernstein made it. Did he ever reflect on that to you? Meaning when people have that kind of debut. He came up that night and everything changed after that right. night. He pretty much knew that it was a sort of Cinderella tale and that he just got this unbelievable <laughs> lucky break. Yeah. And did he believe or was it ever discussed even by your mother or people like that? Did your father realize, he must have, that his sexuality and that his, his, his good looks were as much a part of his talent as anything else? I think there's no doubt about that. And I, I, I think <laughs> he played he, it. I, he played it Probably from high school on, you know, and as soon as he started playing the piano and knew he had this incredible talent and could play at parties and get all this attention and... He had a meeting out of his hand. Oh, my God. And... and, uh, Or feeding him the shrimp out of their hand. Yeah. But at age 25, he was still a little geeky. I mean, the pictures of him with the Philharmonic after the debut where he's all exhausted and tousled and sweaty, he actually looks like... Like a bar mitzvah boy. He looks a little <laughs> funny. Um, and it, I think he kind of grew into his grooviness over the subsequent years. So your father, he had three children over 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and what, what was that like for him in terms of were, were there – did he have certain kind of rules in terms of how he protected you from the public and the schools you went to and the way you lived your life? Or was he just very loosey-goosey? You know, about I would say that he was not a was big Was your mother maker. in charge? She yeah. was the one who really she designed the, yeah. the way our lives went on a day-to-day basis. He was busy being the maestro, and then he would come home and play with us and, and hang out. And have fun. And have fun. fun. But he was not really the the designer of the domestic scene. He was was great that when he was home, he was really home. You know, he he didn't have an office to go to. When did you become aware of who your father was? You know, when you're growing up, your family is just your family. You have no no objectivity about it. And, And your parents are just your parents. And you don't really think about how different they might be from the others until you get older. At some point, when we were pretty young... There was an episode of the Flintstones. What time is it, Betty? It's ten minutes to nine. Betty and Wilma were going to go to the the Holly Rock Bowl. I love to watch Leonard Bernstone conduct. Mm. And the first thing on the program is that gorgeous symphony by Rocky Maninoff. (laughs) That's when we knew he had really hit the big time. Thrilling. And uh, how old were you? You were kids, little kids. Yeah, yeah we like, were, you know, nine and six. Nine, probably like yours, even less. Uh, was there a downside to it? Did you feel like there were things that were tough for you with him? Looking back on it now or when we got older, probably look back and think about some downsides. But at the time, it really didn't seem so bad at all. It was yeah, a lot of fun. When we were really little, it was just a lark. The, I, I, I often try to think back to, come on, you know, there must have been some he was shadows. But but uh, we had a pretty fantastic early childhood. It was yeah. it was kind of wonderful. He's not some tortured introspective. He was a happy guy, and he was a celebrity. He was tortured and, he was and introspective. He, he was. was. But, but back in those early days of our family life, um, that was 
overshadowed by the the joy and the happiness, the busyness and the family life and he all of that. He kept that from you. We was on the ascendant. Yeah. We, yeah, he kept that from you. I'll tell you, for, in, in my memory, the moment when it changed was November 22nd, 1963, the day JFK was assassinated. That was when the shadow fell over and, and life became sort of real. Up until that point, you know, grown-ups just had fun as far as we could perceive. And then right. that day, we saw our parents fall apart. Mm-hmm. They were crying because they were friends of the Kennedys. Of they had been to the White House. They had had dinner, just the four of them, yeah. imagine. They had been you know. centerpieces of Kennedy's of cultural yes. programming in the White exactly. House. Yeah. So they father were, was what he brought know, they, into the They White could House. not have been more connected to right. the Kennedy administration and, and everything that it stood for. So on that day when, when he was assassinated, our parents just fell apart, and so did the whole rest of the family and all their friends, and they pulled down the shades and sat around crying all day and just watched TV. Now we could perceive that there were shadows and that there were ups and downs. That wasn't visible to us How until that time. How the world itself can affect people psychologically. Yeah. Uh, what about your mom in terms of uh, her music appreciation? I mean, she studied the piano, but did she go on to have any kind of a serious career, even in her young years when she was with Arau? Did she play? Did she study? Once she met and married your father, did all that stop? Her piano playing stopped. She would play in sometimes anyway. at home and quite beautifully. But she wasn't but, as passionate about it. No. Uh, what was she passionate she, about? She was passionate about her acting. She kept at that. Sometimes she would... Uh, and what were some of the things she was working on during her career? She did a lot of early television, Playhouse 90 and, and Craft Theater Studio and all One. those live dramas that they had. At, in, in New York. In early television. Yeah. She did a lot of that and a lot of stage work. Did that stop at some point? It kind of... Uh, receded as she became Mrs. Maestro and a mom, which was a, a double job that could keep anybody of course. busy and, and, 24-7. And was, she, and, and was she generally happy to do those things? Or did she ever voice? Because it's interesting to me to have someone who is uh, in the world of music herself. She was a, she studied with Rao. She's a serious opportunity there. She had aspirations about music and acting. And did she miss those things? Did she ever say, gosh, if only? Did she have a little bit of a wistfulness about it? I think it? she was pretty ambivalent about it. Yeah, she and she didn't really talk a lot about her inner self too much. Uh-huh. What she did really talk about well. a little bit was that she had uh, some st- stage fright issues. And so when she started performing less in public, she would say that she was relieved. And, and that being, you know, this, this Mrs. Bernstein persona was a, a way of not having to confront her fears about performing. But I think... You know, anybody who has performed has a part of them that still wants to perform. But she knew that that like it was just going to be too hard to have these, you know, two rampant egos in the household. Probably a good call. Coming up, more about Bernstein's early years in Massachusetts and his final concert at Tanglewood, which his brother described as Lenny coming home to die. Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. 
Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Alec Baldwin. You're listening to Here's the Thing. I'm talking with two of Leonard Bernstein's children, Jamie and Alexander. I see someone like your dad, who sounds very childlike, did the young people's concerts. Father, fun, and joy, and, and, and family, and love, bursting with love. Leonard Bernstein is someone to me who, when he's on the podium, love is just shooting out of him like a rainbow. You got it. Love yeah. of this, and love of that, and love of life, and love of sex, and love of sound, and love of women, and love of beauty. And I wonder, was it because as a result of his classical training, did he not have enough childhood? Um... His childhood was uh, not about music. He was at raised all. where? He was well, he was born in Lawrence, Massachusetts, and then he, shortly thereafter they moved to uh, the Boston area. First they lived in Roxbury. And moved a lot. They moved Why? around a lot. What did his dad do? He was a hair products salesman. He was a salesman. Yeah. And his mom was she musical? Not in not the least. How did the music get into his life? Well, here's the thing. There was this Aunt Clara who moved to Florida, and so she sent all her furniture over to her brother Sam's house. And along with all the couches and break fronts arrived this upright piano. Our dad was 10 years old. The piano got hauled into the house, and as our father told it, he touched the piano, and that was it. He, he, he knew. It's one of those stories. And he taught himself theory. He just played the piano. He figured he could he could figure it all and out. And ten is late in the modern world. And the thing about uh, his dad, Sam Bernstein, is that Sam, you know, it was a depression. But Sam was very proud that he was able to tide his family over the depression because he had this very successful 
a beauty supply business, the Samuel J. Bernstein Hair Company. In Boston, yeah. it's Bernstein, <laughs> was right. the slogan. And he had the uh, New England uh, franchise for the Frederick's Permanent Wave Machine. Right. Which everybody was, knows that even in a depression, there's two things you don't let go of, booze and vanity. Correct. There you go. You can have your and hair so done. all those women would go and, and be attached to that, that machine that looks like Bride of Frankenstein, you know? <laughs> They were all doing it. So they got through the Depression, and Sam was so proud that he was able to pass the Samuel J. Bernstein Hair Company along to his eldest son to run. And, of course, Lenny had no intention of running the Samuel J. Bernstein Hair Company in Boston. It's Bernstein. And it was a real problem between the two of them. Even though he had a great head of hair. Yes, he did. He had a swell head of hair. Then what happened? Sam was not going to let him be a Kletzmer musician, you know, because he came from the old weddings country. and funerals, and that was it. You know, that's what a musician does. In the old country, that a, a musician was a beggar, a homeless sure. guy who went from shtetl to shtetl playing the fiddle and getting a few kopecks at the wedding. You call that a living? So what happened? <laughs> so little by little, it became clear that he was immensely talented at this, and he, it went to the Boston Latin School and then to Harvard. And, and he gets to Harvard to study what? Music. Just, no, they had no music department. Right. No then. music department then. No. You couldn't major in it. So he was he a literature I, guy? I, yeah. so he was born in 1918. 1918. Yeah. So he's there, you know. Class of 39. 39. It's... No music department at Harvard there in the, just immediately prior to the war. None. Mm-hmm. And then when he leaves Harvard, where does he go? He goes to Curtis. Curtis Institute. So, so Curtis Institute is where for one he year. goes to the next level. He was yeah. Curtis is where yeah. the music. But at Harvard, he's writing music. He's putting on shows constantly. But Curtis is the real but, temple of musical study that he enters. Yeah. And this is yeah. the real formalizing of his right. musical education. And he studies uh, with Fritz Reiner. Right. You know, right. studies conducting. It, it all goes up a big level and, you know, here. A big level. And it was, it was tough. Yeah. He was very lonely. It was, a, it was a tough year or two for him at, at Curtis. He's there for how long? A little over a year, I think. He and didn't then what last happens? A long time. And then he came to New York. Desperate to find work. He was ready to, to hit New York. and he To do what? He started, he wrote... Uh, arrangements. Arrangements and stuff under an assumed name. Lenny, Lenny Amber. Amber. He arranged he Ornette Coleman charts. He did all sorts of weird things. He did a... Didn't he do like a four-hands version of El Salon Mexico for Aaron Copeland? Well, that was the big thing. He, he got to know Aaron Copeland. Okay, and how, he got did, to know how did that people. happen? That, he was still in college when he met yeah. Aaron. Harvard or Curtis? Harvard. Harvard, yeah. So at Harvard, he meets Copeland under what circumstances? Because if he's not in a music program, how does he rub shoulders with Copeland? I think he gets invited to... He came to New York for the weekend. To, yeah, to New York. He was invited to... So he's a, seeking out and sniffing out the musical world, even yeah. though he's at Harvard. And he's at a concert, else. I think. It was and a ballet he's sitting next to Aaron. Ooh. And uh, they get to know each other. And it turned out to be Aaron's birthday. And Aaron invited our dad back to his... Loft for the party. So Clara ships the piano to the house. That's, that's ooh, moment number one. He gets seated next to Copeland. Ooh, moment number two. And then goes to the birthday party and plays Copeland's piano variations in front of the whole crowd, which our dad was in the habit of doing and clearing rooms because it's a very gnarly piece. And so he said, are you sure you want me to play it at this party? Because it usually clears the room. Ooh, 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 and Aaron said, not at this party. And he played it and didn't clear the room. He did not clear that Copeland's, room. Uh, uh, yeah, it's all of Copeland's contemporaries. And he plays And a friendship and Sprang a relationship right with Copeland commences there. Right. Lifelong. 
And other than I would say probably as much, if not more, than Slatkin, your father was one of the great interpreters of Copeland. I mean, the, the two of them were my two favorites. Bernstein and Slatkin are my two yeah. favorite Copelandizers. And then what, what is the, the quick series of steps that gets him to the associate directorship of the Philharmonic? I think an introduction to uh, Kusevitsky, going to Tanglewood, conducting at Tanglewood. So he's a, so he's a guest conductor at Tanglewood? He, no, he's a, a student. He's a student conductor at Tanglewood. Student, uh, at Tanglewood Orchestra. Orchestra. Tanglewood, Tanglewood had just been invented by right. Kusevitsky, and, and our dad was in that first class. And, and, and so Kusevitsky is the one who builds Tanglewood. He, right. he is the, he, she, oh, he's the music director he's of the BSO it, yeah. who oversees the construction of that. What, what are some of your best memories of your dad there? What would you do? Remember, what was his... If you, well, go ahead. Give me, give me your, your laughing. <laughs> well, right. we're laughing because... Our dad loved to go to Tanglewood so much his entire life. Every time he went up there, it was like he would be rejuvenated. He would turn into a kid again. It's a holy place. It's a holy holy place. place. And what he really loved was being with all those kids. Can we say that again, that, that, that the Berkshires is a holy place? So your father loved it there. So, Tell and me And we both that. worked uh, at Tanglewood. What did you do? I went for a few more years than Jamie. We were guides. We were guides, Ooh. which was it's a fancy name for just doing anything that they need to be done. But, um, you know, you man the gates and you show people around. That was the guide part. Sometimes there would be tours. but uh, And also you, you would stand be backstage st- right. and help the artists and move them around and pick them up at the airport, stuff like that. And it was just heaven to be up there for a summer And there was also this sense, I I think our dad had it from the very beginning, that, you know, everybody was sort of out in this beautiful weather, in this beautiful place with all these fun people, and there would be shenanigans. We just fell right into the shenanigans sensibility of the place, that, you know, it was just fun, and everybody was partying all night, and... And, and, you know, having romances and... and it's funny you, you know. say that because it is probably one of the two or three most romantic places I've ever been. I mean, you can go... For those people listening who don't know, uh, the Tanglewood is in the Berkshires in Massachusetts, and it's the, uh, it's the summer residency of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And you go up there to Lenox, massive piece of land. It's a massive tract of land. And in that way, in a good way that you can talk about going somewhere with someone and driving uh, uh, that decompressing road trip that as you drive and drive and get closer and closer, you just feel your, your body relaxing. And then you get to have the excitement of going to Tanglewood. And you go and you get your your basket and your food and your wine. That's and the real this, fun is to be out on the lawn, uh, the lawn under the even, stars. The, 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 it's lawn, the, the lawn is even better in a way yeah. if you've got the basket and the girl and the wine or whatever your preference is there. And I think I've never seen more people who are getting it right, you know what I mean, in terms of having a lovely evening, and if they get smashed on top of it, you know. I guess what I'm saying is there's nothing like getting smashed at Tanglewood. And the truth. <laughs> it's, the, it's the best kind of You smash. know, the year no that comment. I was a guide there was the year... <laughs> what? Said no comment. <laughs> no comment. The year that I was a guide there was the year the Fillmore East came up there, like three different times, and I it's saw the who? the who and Jimi Hendrix so at the that, shed. You're saying that Bill... Graham. Uh, Graham, uh, his production company, Phil Maurice, meaning the, as a production company. Yeah, they came yeah. up in a the artists convoy up there. of rider trucks and slide with and all those you know, and Marshall and played amps. the shed. They played who the played? Shed. The, the who? who? played the shed? And the I shed. was... That's I like was... a bathroom to them. <laughs> we light up. Say what? 
Real pleasure it is to be back in Tanglewood again. We were only here last August. They trashed that lawn. That's why they were never invited back. You, should, you would not have wanted if to I was see on that, that board, the next I would, day. I used, I, isn't it funny how we've changed? Back then, I would have been the who. Now I'm like, we're not having them here. <laughs> we can have their, their likes here in Tanglewood. <laughs> they tried uh, it. Who else did Graham bring Mr. Kiley, who ran the uh, head of the groundskeepers, was just beside himself. Yeah. He had a coronary. He really, it was, it was a Kylie. disaster. Your father loved it there, though. He loved it, and he loved to stay up all night yakking with the students. That was what really— Who did your dad admire in his constellation? Who did he—I heard a story once from someone. They said that they were at your family's home, and your father's standing there with a cigarette in his hand and a drink in the other, and someone says, I just came from seeing the Beatles. And, they, and the quote was a very simple one. They said that Bernstein said, turned to my friend and said, you came and saw the Beatles? He says, I can't wait to see them myself. He said, I'm mad for them. <laughs> and, and he just had a passion— for all disparate forms of music. Absolutely, Absolutely true. He did, he did and he true. really did love the Beatles a lot. And we were so lucky as we were growing up because I was a complete Beatle maniac. Sure. And my dad loved their music too. So together we would discover the Beatles and, and when they had a new album, I would run out and get it and go straight to my father's studio and say, look, look, I've got Rubber Soul. And he'd say, great, let's put it on right now. And we'd stick the record on. And I learned more about music by listening to the Beatles with my dad than I think I did any other way. You know, my dad passed away. He was very young. My dad was only 55. He was a year older than I am now. He had a very rare form of cancer. Uh, and he died of lung cancer when he was 55. And your dad didn't live a very long life either. How old were both of you when your dad passed away? Well, he died at 72, which is not... 45, I was. You were... 35. 35. And 35. I was 39. So you were, so you were grown adult people. Yeah, but, it, yeah. but like you, our mother died when she was 56, and we were much younger when that happened. She died in 1978. So we were in our early 20s, and Your our dad sister— dad died in what year? He died in, in 1990. Right. So by then we were, you know, adults more or less. <laughs> but when, when our mother died, we were a, still a very young family. Nina was only 15. 16, yeah. Or something. But did your mother die from? Lung cancer. Right. Was she a smoker? Yep. My point is that uh, your dad didn't live a very long life. He did he die he was, suddenly or did he get sick and he knew he was in trouble? He got. He was sick for like six months of being really he sick. He was diagnosed with? Uh, he had all sorts of chest problems. Sure. You know, through his life. But... Uh, it was it, it was not cigarette related. Mesothelioma. Mesothelioma, was. which was probably an asbestos thing when he was a kid, or who knows. Right. I mean, it didn't help that he smoked, obviously, but um, right. And yet, it's a combination. And, yeah. But you know, the, just the, the having the oxygen and stuff—that was the last, you know, month or so. He died in October, and his last concert was at Tanglewood in, in August, August that of summer. 1990. Yeah. That so, summer. So, okay, so. He could barely get through the The last the performance, thing but. your father conducted was a public performance in Beethoven the summer. Seven, yeah. He did the Beethoven 7 yep. at Tanglewood in August of 1990 yep. and died that October. Yep. 
I think about your dad, and did he just, when he knew he was sick and he knew he was in trouble, health because my dad knew he was in trouble. I mean, there was a moment I had with my dad where he, like, he looked at me with this look in his eye like he knew it was over. And he, and he just, I mean, he, he had a tear run down his face, and my father said, I'll never know my grandchildren. And when, oh. I, when, I, when I think about this with your dad, a guy like that who had so much more he wanted to do, did he ever express that to you? Did he ever talk about that? He wasn't done? Yeah, he did, you know. And I think, uh, you know, he had this fantastic, climactic moment at the very end of 1989, the year before he died, when he conducted at the fall of the Berlin Wall, and he did the Ode to Joy, and instead of singing Freude, which means joy, they sang Freiheit, which means freedom. It was such a big deal for him to be there when the Berlin Wall came down, and it was such a momentous occasion. Where were you when that happened? I wish I had been there. And in retrospect, I regret that I wasn't there, but I had just given birth to my son, Evan, like less than eight weeks earlier. So you have an excuse. That was my excuse, so I watched it on the couch on Christmas Day while I was nursing my infant son. I watched it on TV because they they showed the whole thing in a live broadcast. What about you? I don't even have an excuse, and I can't remember why I didn't go. I can't believe that I wasn't there. It's just unbelievable. You know, we didn't know he was going to be gone within the year. So, you know, he was always there, and there were always these occasions where you could go and meet him on the road, and there were hundreds of them, and it was kind of a pain to go get in with that whole retinue and, and the whole madness of be, of the tour thing. And so By one could then only, it had become Entourage City, you know. Right after that, he got really sick with a flu. And What year was that? 1989. Yeah. It was like at, this at the fall itself. Christmas of 1989. And I remember visiting him about a month later, less than a month later, in Key West. And he was just not feeling right. And he told me so. He said, I just, I'm not, I don't feel right. That was the, the beginning of the slow decline. And then things got a lot worse in May. And then he just kind of struggled through all his gigs over the summer and then barely made it through that Beethoven 7. We were all in the audience clutching each other's hands Where like, is he going to make it? Is he going to make it? Cause what, he was, what, what, what was his life like after your mom passed away? Did, he didn't remarry, did he? Uh, no, he did not. And he, he, uh, he, it was, Why do you think he, he was so miserable for a long time after she died? He needed her. Uh, he needed her, and uh, he was just devastated. He wasn't prepared for, for that at all. A long, long time until we went on vacation. Probably, I don't know, eight months later, something like that. And he, he, we sort of saw, started seeing signs of, of a person again. Tell um, about what happened in Jamaica. Uh, when uh, after the Christmas dinner, and then we went to the bar. Oh my God. Uh, this was the vacation in uh, Jamaica, a bunch of our family and uh, a couple of friends. And we went down to the bar. Uh, and there were probably a couple of people in there. And he sits down at the piano in the bar. And this was after dinner, after, you know, a lot of scotch, whatever, a lot of wine. And he plays Rhapsody in Blue from beginning to end. It was the most amazing performance you could possibly imagine. I mean, you just ripped it.
it was unforgettable. And then that's kind of when I knew he was back. It was just through the music. He was, yeah. He and tells he you where was, he's at through the music. Oh my God. So, um, uh, obviously he never married again, but, um, why do you think he never married again? You see a guy like that. You mean, my God, he could have had any woman in New York. He didn't have room in his life for that anymore. No. And there was some men that he was very close to. And, right. uh, and would you say that once your mother passed away, was your father's life as a bisexual man, did he just live it more vividly once your mother was gone? Was he much more, no, was he much so more much, living color about it? And... His, uh, his mother was still alive. Oh. And I think that played a great role. In, that was uh, kind of a governor there that prohibited it. was kind him. of a governor, yeah. And then when she and died, also, when he, was yeah, he still had a public It was a different time. Right. Was... She outlived him. Yeah. She was 92 when he died, and she said memorably, this will shorten my life. Wow. And so he, and so he, you think that he kept that quiet and kept that private, not only because was that, that his nature? To be a little more private about that? partly his nature. He, he, he sort of came out uh, uh, sort of a few times. Uh, and he, I think he was, once he was hoping people would take more notice of it than they did, I think. But um, he didn't want uh, his mother to have to deal with it with her friends and, you know, having pe people talking about if it. If he was alive now, how old would that be? If he was alive now, he'd 95, be 90. I think? Yeah. Be 95. His, yeah, Centennial will be 2018. Who was someone, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there were boundless people because your father was very generous of heart, it seems, and very passionate. But who were some of the people other than Kuzovitsky and Copeland that we've covered before? Who were some of the people that were contemporaries of your father that you remember him speaking very glowingly about? Who did he admire? Uh, Lucas Foss would be mm -hmm. one. They uh, were at Curtis together. That's where they mm -hmm. met. And they stayed friends and colleagues their entire lives. And uh, Lucas was a stupendous pianist in addition to being an excellent mm -hmm. composer. So um, he played our dad's Age of Anxiety, which is a sort of like a piano concerto, although it's called a symphony. And, and Lucas could just play the hell out of it. And, and our dad premiered many of Lucas's pieces with the Philharmonic. And so that friends. was, he so was one were, of them. Michael Tilson friends. Thomas was someone that our dad kind of nurtured along when he was So he was Tilson Thomas' Kuzovitsky, to a degree. Uh, yes, to a degree. Who, else, who, who else did he perform? Who else did he mentor? Oh, well, he was Mr. Mentor. Seiji Ozawa to a great degree, I think. Oh, um, yeah. John Nutcher. Another guy with great hair. Yes. Says she. Great hair. Great hair. The great, great hair, hair school of conducting. Oh, yes. Nothing like that hair flying through the air. Looks great. It's amazing how many great hair conductors there are, isn't yeah. it? So Ozawa. Right. Yeah. Well, when he was Sondheim? conducting at the Philharmonic. What he... was his relationship with Sondheim? Oh, that was a big, big relationship. Big friendship and colleagueship. Sure. You know, West Side Story Jerry changed Robbins. their do, lives do, do, forever. All of them had this phenomenal success. Yeah. Initially, West Side Story was supposed to be, if I'm, if I'm right, uh, an Irish-Jewish gang. Yeah. Uh, a yeah. Lower East Side. It was going to be East Side it was, Story. It was going to be Lower East Side Story. Yeah. Right. Tempers would flare over the Easter Passover holidays. <clears throat> right, right. 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 The and shillelaghs then, versus the... Uh, mezuzahs. The mezuzahs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. And then apparently Jerry Robbins saw some article about uh, gang wars with Puerto Ricans in, on the Upper West Side, and he went, ding! You know, 
the the bowl. It was Jerry. Went, it was. I think it was Jerry. Or was it I, Arthur? Arthur always said it was Arthur. So I don't know. Oh, maybe it was Arthur. Probably the most romantic line in a movie I've ever heard, and it always brings me to tears when he turns to her. They have the moment of the dance, and he turns to her and says, "You're not lying to me, are you?" And she says, "I have not yet learned to lie about such things." That's right. I have not I'm yet not learned, learned to, to joke to, that to way. Joke. I think now I never You're not will. joking with me. Is that what she says? Yeah. You're not joking. I have not yet yeah. learned to joke. Give it to me again. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> wait, you, see, wait, wait, you know wait, why you we're laughing? Here we go. Ready? Okay. You say it. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. We're going to have a live performance. Go. You're not joking with me? I have not yet learned to joke that way. I think now I never will. There you go. There it is. And the reason we're laughing is because there's a recording of our dad conducting West Side Story for a... In a recording session, and he got Alexander and my sister Nina to do that dialogue. It's so much to believe. You're not joking me. I have not yet learned how to joke that way. I think now I never will. Now, speaking of films, your father only composed, I mean, other than them transferring uh, Westside to a film, your father only composed one film score. That's right. And it was a hell of a film score. Hell of a and, film and, score. And, and very Bernstein-esque. And uh, uh, why do you think he only did... Your father's someone... I mean, I see people... This is interesting because I see so many people. Billy Joel, Sting. I mean, you see uh, Elton John make his foray into that. But I see so many people who I think to myself... Billy especially, who's a friend... I say, my God, you could be doing so much music, a movie score if you wanted to. And they just don't. They don't have a passion for it. Why did your father just do the one, do you think? Well, because he really did not enjoy the experience. Why? Because he was being bossed around. Kazam. Yeah, well, what happened, the, the example he gave was that he wrote, you know, this soaring music that the, the dynamics that he composed were all in his head and all recorded a certain way. And then when they're mixing, they just dunk the fader on it so that, as our dad put it, so that you could hear Marlon Brando's grunt and 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 so just at the at the climactic moment of of his love music you know in the in the final mix they just dunked the <clears> fader they would say okay we need 15 bars of passion and then you know 30 seconds of you know quivering and he just couldn't write that Think way that so way it was impossible yeah. so, so uh, he it is, mean, he, it loved is the, a he loved the talent. movie yeah. but he just hated doing the work you have children? I have a daughter, yes. You have a daughter who's how old? She'll be 14 in two weeks. You have a daughter that's 14? Yeah. And what is she into? What does she do? She's into uh, her first year of high school and uh, loving it, and she's into theater in a big way. She loves to um, You're raising your kids in the, in the city or outside the city? In the city. You're raising your daughter inside the city, and she likes acting. She likes acting, but she's also, you know, she loves her uh, English class and history class and... Math. Her school and her friends and her... What about you? I have two. I have a daughter. How old are they now? They're in their 20s now. They're in their early 20s. What do they do? My daughter, Frankie, lives in Brooklyn. She's a writer. And my son is uh, still in school up in the Berkshires, as a matter of fact. He's up in... He lives in Lee, Massachusetts. Now, now for both of you, your children, I mean, obviously they know they didn't have to watch. In their case, they weren't watching... Leonard Bernstone, uh, they, that wasn't the cartoon, wasn't the gateway into an understanding of who their grandfather That's was. That's true. But they know who he is. Oh, yeah. And have you had, and do they, do they have an appetite and a passion to understand who he is and see who he is? My or? kids don't. They're very careful about sort of keeping their distance from that whole connection. I think it makes them a little shy, a little, a little anxious. And so they don't, 
they don't uh, uh, what do you embrace mean it's based on without getting too personal because I have an opinion about that because of my daughter. Oh, really? Well, well that they, what they want is that they sense that celebrity has become so uh, exponentially uh, out of control now, and they prefer their privacy. If knowing that I was related directly to Leonard Bernstein was going to lead to something appropriate or comfortable or right, that would be one thing. But nowadays, everybody's after the wrong thing. And it's That's really, really interesting. I mean, I think about that a lot because our father really loved being famous and we had fun with it. And it was just a different type of thing in those days. It, uh, it was it's, different. It's more of an industry now. Right. And he started seeing that more and more starting in the 80s, and he talked about it a lot. And he, he once said to me, I'm so sick of Leonard Bernstein. Mm-hmm. I've had it with him. I've always had a problem about time. But when I had a problem about time at the age of 25 or 30, uh, when you're still at least in part thinking you're immortal and nothing's ever going to change the way you are or abbreviate it everything's all right i mean i would go on concert tours and compose in the airport or on the plane or on the train i wrote half of the age of anxiety in airports and trains and hotels i can't do that anymore and it's been some time since i could one of the reasons is one standards get higher and higher self-identification with the composer whose works you are performing becomes closer and closer to the point where there are performances which are the ones I call good performances but I know it's been a really good performance it's one in which I have the feeling I've written the piece standing there and and when it's over I don't know where I'm standing As he grew older, Bernstein's connection to the music of Gustav Mahler, whom he had championed throughout his career, became even stronger. I think he uh, felt a deep association, I mean, apart from the music itself, obviously, an association with Mahler as a conflicted musician, Mahler being Jewish and in a non-Jewish world and being... uh, a tonal composer in an atonal, a more atonal world uh, becoming so. Being a, a European man who came to America, you know, somebody from the classical tradition coming to America and, and suddenly finding themselves in, in this crazy uh, world. Uh, so I think there was an affinity there. Plus he was the combination of composer and conductor, which there aren't that many of. I would love to have known your father. Your father is, was so singular 
and remains so singular because number one, whenever he came on, I was happy. And whenever he came on, I was excited. And he never disappointed me. And when I would see him, I'd say, what you get from Bernstein, you can only get from Bernstein. He was the original in his field. Leonard Bernstein's children, Jamie and Alexander, say their father was so original in part because he just never stopped celebrating music, celebrating life. He never slept. <laughs> he was a terrible insomniac. I think that's probably why he managed to squeeze in so much action. He was always at it, you know. I and wish he was around. He and I could have hung out together. Oh. oh I'm an insomniac. I mean, could you imagine oh, Bernstein you and I in your kitchen watching been, YouTube together? You could have come over at 4 a.m. and you could have hung out. God, it we could have been, been watching old movies together. And Yeah, and you would have gone to the piano and played all the old Bernard hilarious. Herman scores. Exactly. Yes, everything. This is Alec Baldwin to learn more about Leonard Bernstein and Artful Learning, an educational organization that his son Alex spearheads. Go to heresthething.org. Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. Hello! Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.